Well, let's read together from God's Word in Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, it's on page 794 in the Church Bible, and we're going to read from the first verse. We're going to think this morning about verse 11 of this chapter, but we just need to remind ourselves of the context in which that verse comes. It's a letter written by Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon, uh, the people of Israel who have just been carried off into slavery. Jeremiah 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please turn to Jeremiah 29 once again, to that passage that we read. It's on page 794 in the Church Bible. We're looking particularly at verse 11, because as I tried to think about what to preach this morning, uh, my mind kept, well, it, I went to a number of different passages, all of which would have been very suitable, I'm sure, but 
uh, I kept coming back to this verse, uh, verse 11 of Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's good to be reassured, isn't it, today especially, that God is still working out his plans for Trinity. He knows what he's doing. It is his plan. There is a plan, even though we don't have access to it, and even though we may not understand it much of the time. And this time of transition as a congregation is part of that plan. The year is 597 BC in Jeremiah 29, and the Jews are passing through the beginning of the darkest episode in the nation's history. Because the unthinkable has just happened. The city of Jerusalem has been invaded by the heathen king of Babylon. 10,000 of the key citizens, including the king and the queen mother, have been marched off to exile 600 miles away in Babylon. It is an unprecedented national calamity. Jerusalem was the city of the Most High God, the place where God had chosen to dwell. And Babylon had always been a symbol in Scripture for everything that is anti-God, everything that is foul and evil and unclean. And so it seems, looking in from the outside, it seems as though wickedness has triumphed once and for all. It looks as though the end has come, the end of God's promises, the end of the covenant, the end of hope. It looks as though God has been defeated by the pagan gods of Babylon. It looks as though his plans have been frustrated. And to these frightened, bewildered, despairing exiles in Babylon, Jeremiah writes a letter. And he draws back the veil over the situation and shows what is going on from a God's eye view of the universe. He reveals something of God's purposes to the people. Shows them their situation from, from God's perspective. And as he does that, what seems to the Jews on the ground in Babylon like a catastrophic mess is actually part of God's great unfolding wise plan for his people. And in this chapter, in this letter, verse 11, it really is the key verse. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Three things that we see in this verse. First of all, God's plans for us include our sufferings. God's plans for you and for me include our sufferings. That was something the Jews couldn't get their heads around. They couldn't believe, they couldn't accept that it was part of God's purpose for them to go into exile, for them to suffer. And their minds are just reeling from shock 
And they're saying to themselves, God must have been defeated by the Babylonian gods. And then Jeremiah's letter comes in the post and explodes that delusion. In verse 1, it says that Nebuchadnezzar took the Jews into Babylon. But you see what it says then later on in the letter in verse 4 and verse 7? God says, I have sent you into exile. Yes, in one sense it was Nebuchadnezzar, but in a higher sense, in an ultimate sense, it was God. And Nebuchadnezzar was just the instrument that God used to bring about his purpose. That's why he says in verse 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. These are my plans. And at present, those plans include you going into exile. In other words, this exile, this calamity hasn't caught God unawares. Far from it. It's part of his good purpose for his people. He caused it. He ordained it. He's punishing his people in this case because they have broken their covenant obligations again and again. God warned them way back at the beginning when he entered into covenant with them at Mount Sinai that if they broke covenant, if they did not repent, then they would eventually go into exile. And, and that message, that warning has been repeated over and over again. The prophets, one prophet after another, pleading with the people to turn from their sins and repent. And God has given them so many chances to change their ways. And they wouldn't listen. They stubbornly persisted in their sin. And so in the end, God's patience ran out. This exile, this suffering, is part of God's plan for his people. Now, I'm certainly not for a moment saying this morning that all suffering is a punishment from God because of disobedience. But what I am saying, and what we do need to take from this verse, is that all the sufferings and all the trials that come into our lives are part of God's plan for us. Now, that flies squarely in the face of what some Christians believe, isn't it? They think they even teach that God wants Christians to have easy, comfortable lives. But that is a very empty, hollow argument, isn't it? You see the logical conclusion of that kind of thinking. If God wants you to have an easy, comfortable life, and you experience trouble and suffering, well, what does that say about God? He's obviously not the almighty sovereign Lord of creation after all. He's obviously weak and impotent. He's a God who has good intentions, but no power to carry them out. The Jews could hardly believe that God was responsible for the exile. But if God wasn't responsible for the exile, then who was? Was it Nebuchadnezzar? Was he calling the shots in the universe or the gods of Babylon? Of course not. Our doctrine of God demands that his plans for you and me and for our church 
encompass our sufferings. Otherwise, they are meaningless at best, or at worst, they are the triumph of the devil over God. Brothers and sisters, when trouble and suffering come into our lives, cancer and death, depression and despair, we mustn't think for a moment that God's plans have gone awry, that he's lost control of his universe. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. That is tremendously comforting, isn't it? You can hear the voice of your Father in heaven saying that to you in the midst of whatever griefs, whatever difficulties you're going through, whatever hard times you're passing through. I know the plans I have for you. And if the Lord is able to say that to these devastated people who have lost everything because of the Babylonian exile, how much more true is it for us in all lesser crises? Our leaving Trinity to go to Galway is part of his plan hasn't been derailed. It is part of God's plan. The chief shepherd who builds the church has decided in his sovereign wisdom to move me from Trinity to Galway and to open the way for a new pastor to come here to Trinity sooner or later. And we need to trust him. Living by faith means humbly submitting to the Lord's will as it unfolds. But there's more. Jeremiah is not just telling the exiles that this calamity is part of God's plan, so you just have to suck it up because God is sovereign and, well, que sera, sera, this is what he has decided. No, he goes on and tells them something of God's good purpose in the exile. And so we see, secondly, that God's plans for us are not just, they don't just include our sufferings, but they are for our spiritual good. God's plans for us are for our spiritual good. Everything that happens to us, even our most painful suffering, is part of God's plan for our lives. God is in control. It is His plan. But why? Why does he allow his people to suffer? Sometimes horrifically. And the answer comes in the rest of verse 11. Plans for wholeness and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Can you imagine the astonishment in the Jews' minds as they read those words in Babylon? Can you imagine just how ridiculous they must have seemed? Sorry, what, Jeremiah? Plans for wholeness? This is your plan for wholeness? Fresh in their minds would have been the humiliation of being marched out of Jerusalem ripped away from all their friends and all their family, away from their temple, away from their homes, 
and then within 10 years, the city of God would be a smoking ruin. The holy temple would be ransacked and razed to the ground, and yet God's word would still be the same then as it was here. Plans for wholeness. And you can imagine the Jews saying out loud and asking one another, how can such an appalling calamity possibly be for wholeness and not for evil? Surely this is nothing but evil. And the key lies in the meaning of the word wholeness. Because very often this word describes spiritual well-being, spiritual prosperity spiritual wholeness. What God wants for his people, in other words, is not a life of ease and comfort, but a life of holiness. That's the great thing. That's the important thing. That's the central thing. It's spiritual health and spiritual growth. And that's exactly what we see, isn't it, in verses 12 to 14. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. There's the purpose of it all. That's how God can say that this is for wholeness. It's because the purpose of God's plan, the purpose of the exile, ultimately is to bring the people to repent of their sins. They have been living abominable lives of idolatry and greed and selfishness and wickedness and injustice. And this is what it takes to turn them around and wake them up and bring them to repentance and make them holy. That's what God is concerned about. That's what he's doing. It's to recommit them to their relationship with him. That's what he's most concerned about. And if the only way to do that is to send them off into exile in Babylon, well then so be it. And that's the same for us. God's plans for us are for our wholeness. That's what he's interested in. That's what he's working towards. It may not be God's plan for you to be rich or clever or popular or athletic, but it is his plan that you should be spiritually whole, that you should be spiritually healthy. And that is the great end. That's the purpose towards which he is shaping and directing all our lives. In other words, God is really saying to the Jews here, my plan for your life is to make you holy, whatever it costs, however painful it is, whatever it takes, even if it means destroying my beloved city, even if I have to scatter you among the nations. Even if I have to burn your homes and my temple, the well-being and the destiny of your soul is infinitely more precious than any of these other things. And we need to see God's providence in our world and in our lives from this perspective. 
God's plans for you and for me and for our church are for our spiritual good. That's what we thought about a few weeks ago, isn't it? When the call came, Romans 8, 28, God works all things for good for those who love him, for our spiritual good. You can't listen to the news these days without hearing about inflation and recession and the cost of living. And it's all pretty bleak, isn't it? But what if the economy crashing completely brought the people of this nation to repent and seek Jesus Christ? Would that not be prospering? Would that not be the best thing that could possibly happen to people? Would we not be far better off living in, well, it would still be relative poverty, to be living in poverty but close to God rather than to live in comfort and to ignore him? God had to smash to pieces the Jews' whole world, their way of life, their farms, their homes, their towns, everything. That's what it took to bring them back to him. But it was worth it because that's wholeness. What if God were to say to you this morning, I am going to bring you into a closeness of fellowship with me that you have never experienced before. You've prayed that you would be close to me, that you would depend on me, that you would have a vibrant faith, that you would be a powerful witness to non-Christians, that you would be used in the world. I'm going to do that. And you're going to pray with new fervor and earnestness. You're going to trust me and depend on me like you've never done it before. Many people are going to be converted through you. But the way I'm going to do it is by you losing your job. You're going to be crippled. You're never going to be able to work again. You're going to suffer a prolonged painful illness. It's going to happen through the death of a loved one. I wonder how many of us would say that sounds like a plan for wholeness. And yet that's what God is teaching us in this verse. His plan includes our sufferings and it's for our wholeness, for our spiritual good. Of course, a non-Christian a worldly-minded churchgoer is going to be completely baffled by this. They're going to say, well, that doesn't sound like wholeness to me. That sounds like the very opposite of wholeness. Surely wholeness means having a nice home and good health and a happy family, being sexually fulfilled, having a secure job, a healthy bank balance. Surely that's wholeness. God says, no, wholeness is holiness. In the minds of the Jews, going into exile in Babylon was the worst thing that could possibly have happened to them. And yet God says, I'm using that very thing to make you holy. What's the worst possible thing that could happen to you? 
Some of you don't need to imagine because it's already happened. Whether it's happened or not, God says to you today, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. For spiritually healthy Christians, a pastor leaving his congregation can be devastating. In fact, I think I've heard that word along with the word gutted and all the synonyms that go with it. I've heard those words more in the last few days than in the last 10 years. It is a devastating thing. It's a devastating thing for us to go. And yet God's plan, and this is part of it, is for wholeness and not for evil. This is for Trinity's good. This is for Galway's good. This is for our good as a family in the Lord's hands. And perhaps we could imagine all kinds of ways that the Lord is going to use this time of transition for wholeness. And if we can imagine 10 or 20 different ways that the Lord will use it for wholeness, no doubt there are many, many more that we can't imagine. He's going to use this time of transition, I'm sure, to help you to focus and trust in Christ and not to depend on a pastor, if that's a temptation for some people. I'm sure he's going to use this time of transition to develop gifts in the congregation that maybe aren't being used at the minute or not being used as much as they might be because there's a full-time pastor uh, doing so much of those things. Perhaps this time of transition will spur others to step up and take responsibility. When there's no full-time worker in a congregation, then the burden falls on the members, and that's a burden that ought to be shared out. And perhaps people who can shirk responsibility or shrink from responsibility or abdicate responsibility, when there's a pastor there, this is a time to step up and take responsibility. I'm sure that it will make the congregation more prayerful. You'll feel vulnerable. You'll feel perhaps somewhat rudderless, uh, at least for a time. It's been 11 years since the last vacancy. The elders are able, godly, outstandingly competent men, uh, but they're not full-time pastors. And so perhaps as you're all the more conscious of your need for guidance and God's provision for needs week by week, uh, there will be a greater sense of crying out to the Lord in prayer. Perhaps it means that some will value the regular, consistent preaching of the Word more when you have it again and prize it more highly. Maybe some have got into the habit of taking it for granted. And when it's not there, very often you realize just how much you do miss something. Perhaps it will lead the congregation to minister to one another with greater care and compassion. Uh, 
when the pastor isn't there to do that, to, to do those visits, and the pastor's wife isn't there to do all those visits, uh, it, it's important that everyone is ministering to one another, looking out for one another intentionally, looking after the elderly and the housebound. I hope that there will be a closer interest in Irish mission now in Trinity. There always has been, but perhaps there will be even more so through the links that we have uniquely with Limerick and Galway. There are now four Trinity men ministering in the west of Ireland, if you include Donegal as well. And Trinity is uniquely placed to support that work even more. I'm sure we've all been guilty of having a northern-centric view of the church. Maybe we're too focused on the eastern presbytery of the church. Maybe we're too focused on Trinity. Maybe some of us even are too focused on our own family. No doubt the Lord is doing, going to do many, many good things through this time of transition because his plans for us are for our spiritual good. And I promise you today from God's word that God can use all these hard things that come with a transition to make you spiritually whole. And the reason I'm so sure of that is because of the third thing that we see here in this verse, and that is that God's plans for us are inevitably fulfilled. God's plans for us are inevitably fulfilled. Unlike our plans, God's plans are perfect in every way. We make plans all the time, but we can't be sure that they're actually going to happen. But God says, I know the plans I have for you. Everything God plans must inevitably happen, because if it didn't, then God wouldn't be God. And so we would expect to see God's plans being fulfilled in the history of the Jews. And that's exactly what we do see. Everything went according to plan, God's plan. Just as Jeremiah predicted, the exile lasted 70 years as God had planned. As God had planned, the Jews were allowed to go back to their homeland at the end of the 70 years and rebuild their cities. And most importantly of all, just as God had intended, the people's hearts were turned to the Lord. They repented of their sin. They came back transformed. And that sin of idolatry that had been such a snare to them ever since Sinai, ever since the golden calf, they had been dogged by idolatry. And that sin of idolatry that had been the primary reason why they were sent into exile in the first place, it was cured by the exile, and it never resurfaced again to the same extent. God's plans are inevitably fulfilled, and if God is able to control superpowers and pagan emperors of history, if Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar are just tools and instruments in his hands for shaping his people into what he intends them to be, well then how much more can he use the, the events, the everyday ups and downs of your life and my life for spiritual good? How often we feel dismayed and overwhelmed by our circumstances. 
How often we feel as though everything in our lives is going wrong. God says to you today, I know the plans that I have for you. God is working out his plan in your life. It may not seem like it at the time. It didn't seem like it to the Jews in Babylon. But it's true. God says to us, my plan is to change you into the image of my son and one day to bring you to heaven. Is that plan any less certain than his plans for the Jews? Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. God's plans may take time to work out. The Jews wanted a two-year excursion to Babylon. That's what the false prophets were telling them. But God knew that they needed a 70-year life sentence. And we need to submit patiently to the Lord's timescale, don't we? Now, I hope, I trust that it won't be 70 years before you have a new pastor. But the length of this transition, that's part of God's plan as well. It's easy to ask, isn't it? Why is this illness dragging on for so long? Why does God not give me victory over this sin now? Why have these loved ones that I'm praying for every day and witnessing to, why have they not been saved yet? And God reassures us here that whatever he's doing in our lives, it's part of his plan to prosper us and to give us a hope and a future. And that plan will inevitably be fulfilled no matter how long it takes. So here's a text to write on our hearts as we go into this time of transition. We don't know what lies ahead in this next year or two. We don't know what's going to happen. But we do know this, and this is all that matters, that our God has a perfect, loving, wise plan for us to make us spiritually whole, and that there is no power in the universe that can prevent that plan from being fulfilled. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you again that you are God and that you are working out your purposes in the universe, both in the big scheme of things and in our individual lives as well. Thank you that there is nothing that is too big or too difficult for you to cope with, that there is nothing too small to be beneath your notice and care. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves into your care and keeping. We pray that you will bless us and lead us and watch over us in the days ahead. We pray for your blessing to rest upon each one of us and upon this congregation. We pray that you will bring your plans for wholeness and prosperity to fruition. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.